Hey, Austin, we're back for more. Back for more? Back for more on this epic saga of the death of the Little Tennessee River. And if you, dear listener, haven't yet heard episode one and two of this series, please go back and listen before we go on so you can meet all the incredible people we're about to talk about. Okay, so we heard from the farmers who, by their perception, were being swindled out of their land by a corrupt government agency. We fought a clean fight. And we heard they had taken the TVA to court over it. Right. But one of the things we didn't hear about was how the farmers were able to use some of the new legislation coming out of Congress for their fight. The Environmental Defense Fund. Some of my fellow law school alums came down and they did the environmental impact statement case. The National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, mandated that an environmental impact statement be filed for actions that could be, quote, significantly affecting the quality of the human environment. And NEPA was passed in 69. Ah, and NEPA was just one of the many pieces of legislation that had come out in the middle of this project. During that time of the wild, wild west of legislation, as Pat Ezell of TVA described it. Yeah. And this was another way the farmers and others were trying to leverage all this new legislation to call attention to the problem of this project. And as we heard our protagonist say at the end of the last episode, there was yet another way that was discovered to fight this dam. Here he is telling about it in his TED Talk. So a story. What's this little fish? This is a tiny endangered species of perch uh, called the snail darter. Zig did this TED Talk after he published a book about this experience called The Snail Darter and the Dam. Austin, I know you weren't around at the time that this was happening, but had you ever heard any history about this case growing up in TVA's region? No, I mean, I grew up in a region where TVA is present uh, with uh, lakes and dams nearby, but I wasn't really familiar with all the stuff that had gone on in eastern Tennessee. Well, I had never heard anything about this. But apparently this controversy was making national news. Some people still remember this story today. Oh, really? Yeah. This was a huge story that kind of helped push people into new paradigms of thinking. I have to say that as soon as Hank said they found an endangered species in the Telugu Project, and the 1973 Endangered Species Act has a violation provision, I was hooked from that moment on. This is the story of Tanasi. This is the story about the epic battle to save the little tea. Today, we follow this story from the fight the farmers started to save their little valley of heaven all the way to the Supreme Court and beyond in part three of our series, The Small Fish in the Highest Court. On Middle of Everywhere, sharing big stories from the small places we call home. I'm Austin Carter. And I'm Ariel Avery. As we know, this whole controversy took place over many, many years, starting in the early 60s and going on until the gates were closed in 79 and after for those who were so invested. And as people our age might understand the history through Hollywood, that time was full of new age thinking. 
A river is God's plan for garbage disposal. Uh, a lieutenant general of the Corps of Engineers told me that once. This is our knight in shining turtleneck, Zygmunt Platter, or Zig, the charismatic lawyer we met in the previous episode. Earth Day had been extraordinarily important in getting all kinds of Americans aware of clean air, clean water. And that popular recognition was up against what previously had been an unquestioned establishment. Yeah, I think about Joni Mitchell's big yellow taxi. They paved paradise to put up a parking lot. Sure, me too. And everyone wanted to hug a tree. They paved paradise, put up a parking lot. But as Zig explained it to me, there was a very different kind of culture among policymakers. Below the surface, in the politics of Washington, environmentalism was a danger. After Earth Day, it became basically a cultural battle. So what the farmers and fishermen in Tennessee had to realize was that the politics of the time was very different from the media. You know, in every day in government, there are probably 300, 400 issues that are being decided, and the press can follow maybe two or three or four of them. Joe Sachs, my, my mentor, said, you've got to find a way to force the power block to pay attention to you. This is Lesson 101 of lawyering in an era of media frenzy. And Zig learned how the media at the time was shaping the national narrative. The way you sell newspapers is you simplify and then you exaggerate. Simplify and then you exaggerate. I talked to more than 120 reporters over that time, the eight years that I was involved. There had been efforts at bringing attention to this river earlier by Supreme Court Justice William Douglas, who came down in 65 to canoe the river and meet the Cherokee, who were also protesting the dam. And so he wrote this article. He went to the National Geographic and they said, yes, indeed. And then TVA called the National Geographic and said, this is a bunch of communists trying to block American progress. So the National Geographic canceled. Everywhere Douglas went to publish his article, he was turned away. Do you know where it was finally published? In true the men's magazine, the picture of a woman in a bikini. That night, when we pulled the farmers together. So you remember when Zig first came into the picture at a meeting of the Association for the Preservation of the Little Tea and talking to the farmers who had been fighting through the courts for years already? Yeah. He came and he told them about the endangered species and that this could be a way to save their farms. The farmers took a little time that night. They sat and considered before voicing their realization. You mean this little bitty fish is what it comes down to? And it really was. The Endangered Species Act was written to prohibit agencies from causing harm. If you look carefully, it says, no federal agency shall take an action that will jeopardize the continued existence of an endangered species or destroy an endangered species critical habitat. Those words are a charge to the legal system. 
And once the farmers understood that... That's when the room decided to support this one more try. And Nellie McCall's husband, Asa... He took off his hat and he passed it around. And, you know, it's not a very rich group, but that was the money that... that, And we started selling T-shirts and we maxed out my Visa card. As Zig, the farmers, and all the other groups involved started fundraising, they also began developing another plan, an alternative that keeps the river. And it was a totally undeveloped river for recreation. It was totally undeveloped for tourism. It was totally undeveloped for history. But it was bringing trout fishermen from hundreds of miles away. And the tourism into the park, the superintendent of the park said, oh my God, this is what the park needs. You bring them up through the historic valley. The farmers are delighted to have history sites onto the Foothills Parkway, and it brings them into the Smokies. But most of it was giving back to the farmers this incredible soil. It was an extraordinarily valuable resource that could be developed. But to do that, you couldn't have a dam. Despite the farmer's enthusiasm and vision, there was one more little roadblock for Zig. That was the night I said to Alfred, who was the farmer who seemed to be the the heart of the group, I said, if we are going to do this, it has to be named what? It has to be named Teleco Farmers versus TVA. Alfred said, look, we can't have two bites of the apple. They wouldn't take another bite. Like another go in the course? Exactly. We'll do everything to support you. We'll write letters, we'll drive to Washington, we'll have potlucks, but you have to name it something else. The farmers refused to be named plaintiff. So we named it Hank Hill, Zig Plotter, and Donnie Cohen versus... TVA. So the decks were stacked on both sides. The TVA had all the control and the funding from Congress, but the farmers had the violation provision in the Endangered Species Act. Yes, but... First of all, we had to get it listed. Zig appealed to his buddies at the Environmental Defense Fund because... I'm just a junior professor who doesn't have tenure, and we have no money. And one after another, they said, no, there's no way you're going to win this. And we want the first case for the Endangered Species Act to be a whooping crane or, or, or an eagle or a condor. Or a polar bear. This would be the first major case for the Endangered Species Act. So this could potentially be a defining case for what the act meant for the United States. I was running a high fever uh, in bed with my two cats on my lap and think, what the hell? I have to do a 553 petition. A citizen's petition to issue, amend, or repeal a rule. Well, number one, the snail darter exists. So I put that down. And number two, it exists so far as is known only in the last remaining flowing 
river miles of the Little Tennessee River. Number three, it used to exist everywhere else, but it's been eliminated in dams. TVA knows about it and is accelerating its construction to destroy the fish before we can get it listed. And I sent it off to Washington and nothing happened and nothing happened. Well, we all know the speed at which Washington usually moves. Do you want to know how I got it listed? Adultery. It, it turns out that Bob Leggett, Robert Leggett from San Diego, was the chairman of the subcommittee for the Endangered Species Act in the House of Representatives. But it turned out that the Mrs. Leggett that he was introducing in Washington wasn't the same Mrs. Leggett he was introducing back in San Diego. Zig worked his connections in Washington to take advantage of this scandal and... Immediately, the fish got listed. And just like that, they were bringing the TVA and the little snail darter to court. In, in the trial in Knoxville, Judge Taylor clearly didn't like us. And then they were back in Judge Taylor's court. He never let us talk about the economic alternatives. But he had to recognize that the project was not only going to destroy the habitat of the fish, but also was likely to jeopardize the, the fish's continued existence. Uh, he dismissed it, saying this is foolish. Zig appealed. Then it goes to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And they said, well, the judge actually has found the facts of a violation. Uh, he may have thought it foolish, but Congress wrote this law. It's going to jeopardize the fish. It's going to destroy its habitat. Uh, there's an injunction. You cannot continue with the project. Well, hot damn. Yeah. But meanwhile, Zig has been denied tenure at UT Knoxville. To the six people who voted against me, it's quite clear that opposing TVA was anathema. And the TVA obviously would not accept the injunction from the Sixth Circuit. So they appealed to the Supreme Court. When I heard that the Supreme Court had accepted our case, um, I was very reasonably panicked. The determined young lawyer had never fought a case in the Supreme Court before. Even if you have a great brief in the circuit court, even if you win unanimously in the circuit court, you've got to start from scratch. The Supreme Court is a much higher level of competence required. But Zig actually had a lot of brain power at his disposal. He had been hired at the Wayne State Law School and was teaching at the University of Michigan. I, I found that I could not pull an all-nighter, but my students could. And so in Tennessee and in Michigan, they were pulling all-nighters and then sending stuff to me. Zig and the farmers had learned a lot about how to get attention on the hill. It, it was like a bunch of villagers coming from Tennessee, up driving overnight to Washington, and going through hearings, going door to door, going through the corridors, trying to make a national awareness. Uh, it, it's sort of like a village trying to bring attention to a nation level problem. 
The people from Tennessee were magnificent in those hearings. Carolyn's mother, especially, Jean Ritchie, uh, Alfred Davis. We, we had a bunch of people who would come in and talk in those hearings as if they were experienced political debaters. We had the general manager of the TVA in um, a Senate hearing. So, so one of the, the senators said, Mr. Sieber, why are you taking this land away from the farmers by involuntary eminent domain? And he said, well, no, no, a lot of them are selling voluntarily. And the senator said, voluntary? says, well, voluntary but unwilling. And the whole room started laughing. Little Nellie uh, was probably 80 years old, backed a senator up against the marble wall and said, Senator, you don't know what's going on. It's communism. When we come back, we hear what the highest court in the land decides. Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. Welcome back. We're reconvening on the steps of the Supreme Court. On the morning of the Supreme Court case, there were 15 or so students sleeping at the door up on the steps of the Supreme Court. I went in, I went up to the desk and looked over on the other side and there was the Attorney General of the United States who was gonna argue against me. I mean, no attorney general in the history of the court had ever lost an oral argument. Zig evaluated the impact he might have on each justice. When you're preparing to go to court, you're always trying to read the judges who are going to be in front of you. And I read them wrong. I thought Blackman for sure would be on our side. I thought Berger for sure would be against us. Justice Warren Berger was a strict constructionist who was appointed by Nixon. So Lee Bollinger who now is the president of Columbia University, had been clerk to, to Berger, and he said, no, Berger won't like you. But sometimes you can get Berger by citing Berger to Berger. So I cited a Berger opinion to Justice Berger in the middle of the argument, and Berger got it. And during the oral argument, Justice Powell leans over and says, Mr. Plotter, can you eat this little fish? Can you use it for bait? Justice Lewis F. Powell was also a Nixon-appointed justice. But the case really was very strong on the facts, on the law, and on the common sense. I worried that I was not going to be able to get across the common sense of protecting the river. I'd gotten out of a taxi from the airport and I walked into the little office of Friends of the Earth and as soon as I came through the door people were jumping up and down you won you won you won I said we won we won what 
I said, well, I know Berger was against us, but no, Berger wrote the opinion. I mean, it was an astonishing moment. And this is where you hear the news media shape the story of environmental protection gone haywire. Stupid little fish. Gigantic hydroelectric dam. Like this NBC News report. It was the little fish versus the big dam builders in the Supreme Court today, and the fish won, for now. This is the fish that's causing all the trouble. A three-inch member of the perch family that lives only on the little Tennessee River, as far as we know smack in the way of a new $116 million federal dam project. Maybe the most important thing I tell my students is that walking out of the court and out onto the steps, there were all of these reporters around. Griffin Bell, the attorney general, was there holding up a little jar with a dead fish in it and saying, this is what it's all about. I really don't see how it makes all that much sense. And then they turned to me and I said something like, we're teaching a federal agency to obey federal law. And I turn to my students and I say, do you you see, is, is that a good thing to say? That's the stupidest thing to say. Because it's like, nya, nya, we got you on a technicality. But with the Supreme Court's ruling, they had another chance at reframing the importance of this win for the public. I hate to say it, but the press conference too. Should have been emotional. It should have been raucous. It should have been noisy. And instead, I said, we've got to come across as objective. We've got to come across as credible. And we blew it again. I mean, it really is terrible, Ariel, that I know about media. I knew its importance. And I completely misread the moment twice. Man, this case is so much weight for Zig to continue to carry around even today. But how did the dam get completed even after the highest court in the land ruled against it? The answer to that is a bit convoluted. Even before the case was heard in the Supreme Court, Senator Howard Baker from Tennessee was working with a senator from Iowa on putting together a committee as an amendment to the Endangered Species Act. This would be a committee that could exempt a project in which it was determined that human necessities outweighed the loss of an endangered species. And I assume that this committee was put together with the idea that the committee would exempt the dam. Right. Baker was definitely in favor of the dam and working out any way he could to push the Teleco project forward. Once this group was assembled, made up of cabinet-level members, people started calling it the God Committee. Oh, wow, yeah, I guess that really would be playing God, deciding which critters get to stay and which get to be wiped out. The God Committee is unbelievably extraordinary. Cecil Andrus, the chairman of the God Committee, the Secretary of Interior, said, I've been looking at the newspapers. This is the only fish story I've ever heard where the fish gets smaller every time it's told. So the God Committee sees presentations from both sides and looks at the project from the inside out. They have to look at what's called the cost-benefit ratio of completing the project. 
They look at things like potential job creation, potential agricultural production, cultural enhancement, and of course the cost of constructing the dam and stripping the valley in preparation to be flooded. And one of the most remarkable things to keep in mind at this point is that by far, most of this project had been completed already. Okay, so what did the committee find? 95% of the budget had been spent. And if you did the economics, the project's benefits would not add up to the 5% that remained to be spent. Oh man, really? There's never going to be an economic surge from just one more dam out of 68 dams. And remember, according to that NBC report we heard a few minutes ago, this project had cost $116 million. And interestingly, the new town that TVA wanted to build, which they had been calling Timberlake, was by this point, dead in the water. Boeing had been the only interested organization in developing this area, and they had pulled out four years earlier. Okay, but at the beginning of this series, you said the property values were through the roof and people were moving there from all over the place. So there must have been some economic benefit from the dam being there, right? Sure, but you forgot about the alternative. The river-based development is so much more valuable. The Secretary of the Treasury who was on the committee is recorded in Zig's book as comparing the two plans. After doing some math on the cost-benefit analysis, he found that the reservoir plan had a benefit of 2.2, and the benefit of the river came out at 2.3, which tells you, without getting into the nitty-gritty of the math, that the farmer's plan made more sense. For 19 years, they were fighting this case, saying this is a project that will destroy more than it would ever create it's make-believe economics, it's power economics, and it's destroying our farms, but a lot more. The heart of this story is farmers without money, without political power, without a whole lot of education, for 19 years tried to bring the truth about a project that was going to destroy national heritage and it was going to destroy economic values for no credible reason. Every member of Congress knew that. 535 letters were sent out. Letters that said, quote, the committee you created found a unanimous verdict that completion of the dam is not justified. The value of the project does not outweigh the value of the river alternatives. Whoa. I even got confirmation that the TVA knew this to some extent when Carolyn sent me images from a copy of the Teleco report she has. But with the story that was being told in the media... They knew that America's public didn't know. I know I've said this before, but... What's so astonishing about this story is that there were so many people and groups fighting against this. There were multiple injunctions put in place, the Supreme Court ruled that it was against the Endangered Species Act, and now this God Committee, which was assembled by a senator who wanted the project, also decides it doesn't merit an exemption. And yet, we know that the dam stands there today. So what the heck could have made this project happen after all? It's male menopause. These guys came down from the north to raise a primitive region. 
Red Wagner, who came to TVA from Michigan. And the children are questioning their elders, and it infuriates them. There are also two terms you hear coming out of Zig's mouth quite often when he talks about this case. The pork barrel, the iron triangle. You don't understand what goes on in government unless you understand the iron triangle. The iron triangle, a triangle is the strongest geometric figure. An iron triangle is made up of Congress, bureaucracy, and interest groups. And they all have an interdependent relationship that consolidates their power base. There are all sorts of iron triangles. Timber, mining, electric, uh, banking, big pharma. When you hear about bills going through Congress in the middle of the night, the Iron Triangle is actively maintaining control. The House is expected to vote on the snail darter tomorrow. Duncan of Tennessee will introduce an amendment that would commit Congress to completing the Teleco Dam, an amendment he says will send the Supreme Court a clear message. Chris Wallace, NBC News, the Capitol. The bill gets pushed through Congress and heads towards the president's desk. But luckily, this was during the Carter administration, a president who is known for his humble beginnings as a peanut farmer and a president who had a lot of concern about environmental stewardship. So the night the bill would be on Carter's desk was filled with anticipation for Zig, for his collaborators, for the farmers, and for everyone who had been involved in this fight over the previous 19 years. Carter was sure to veto. Frank Moore his congressional liaison guy had come to him that afternoon and said, I understand you're going to veto this money bill with the little fish in it. And he said, yes, I think that it is the right thing to do in economic terms and in terms of our environmental policy. You know, good economics is good environment, good ecology. Mr. President, if you veto that bill tonight, Tomorrow, every cartoonist in the country is going to have a picture of you holding a little snail darter in one hand and a killer rabbit in the other. And you can't afford that kind of publicity. This was an allusion to a political cartoon in which Carter is depicted in a boat being attacked by a giant killer rabbit coming out of the water. It was based on a much lesser incident of a panicked rabbit, but needless to say, it didn't do much good for his image. And this is how the Iron Triangle plays its role. If Carter vetoed this bill, the media could portray him as a joke to the American people. So he didn't veto it, did he? The Darter won in the Supreme Court. The God Committee sided on the the Darter's side. We had won. And the snakes, politicians, who did things in the dark and late at night, and put things where people didn't know what they were voting on, got it to the point to where it was actually placed on a bill. Carter could have vetoed it. Being a peanut farmer himself. So that night, the news trickled down. Gradually, everyone who had been waiting, anticipating, discovered that... We'd been sunk. Yeah, been betrayed. (laughs) Yeah. By the President of the United States. We had hope for a little while there. Uh, Wasn't too long, though. But uh, it's quite amazing how they did it. The first law of ecology is everything's connected to everything else. These species are telling you what is going wrong with the rivers, what is going wrong with climate. 
If you think about it, the Endangered Species Act was a substantive prohibition that would open up projects and programs for scrutiny in Washington. There are hundreds of things going on every day, and most of them will never be scrutinized. If you infantilize a complex story, people will never get to the complexity of costs, benefits, and alternatives. The danger of the Endangered Species Act to the pork barrel was that for the first time, citizens with no power, with no money, were going to be able to raise questions about the substantive economic merit of projects. Zig has often described the snail darter as the canary in the coal mine. The discovery of this endangered species was a discovery about a project that was not economically or environmentally sound. It was a discovery about a government agency that, without oversight, was operating outside the confines of the law. And if, if you want to take the metaphor one step further, the people from Tennessee were the little boy in the crowd saying, the emperor isn't wearing any clothes. Unfortunately, it didn't become a media recognition of the reality. Instead, it became a caricature. The caricature of the little fish big dam story was cemented as truth. It's all people really heard for the longest time about this case. Zig failed to get the eyes and ears of the media on the steps of the Supreme Court, in the press release after the Supreme Court win, but most importantly, in bringing to light what was happening to the farmers. Remember what Zig told the farmers that first night at the fort. It has to be named Teleco Farmers versus TVA. And that way the reporters would come and they would say, well, your farm is being flooded for a lake. No, no, my farm isn't being flooded for a lake. They're condemning me at 300 bucks an acre to resell to industry for a make-believe city. That's how they're justifying this up in Washington. It is corrupt. Our farms are being taken by condemnation, not for the lake, but to justify a land swindle. The farmers, did everything right in an American legal system that had all the facts, had all the law it needed, and had all the common sense it needed. Everything is connected to everything else, and this little fish is really connected to the present and the past and the future of American society. I don't think that's grandiose. I think that's a real slice of truth that we all are going to go on living. If only it had been Teleco Farmers versus TVA. I guess we thought we'd already lost as farmers once. And then we're just going to look at it and go, well, they've done this before and we've asked them, why are they coming back? And I have people say, well, if you had to do it again, you wouldn't do all that. But I tell them I'd do it in a minute. I wouldn't lay awake thinking what I'd do. I'd do things different, but it'd be, I'd do more. Uh, if I had to do over again, I'd fight harder. This is the land of the free. You, you have to realize, I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes, and Anne would say to me, 
snail darter. I, yeah. Oh, she'd turn over. <laughs> oh, damn. I'm kind of disappointed that the farmers wouldn't be named plaintiff. I just can't believe that that could have changed history. I know. There's something in this story about the way small-town, rural folks might live their lives and make life-changing decisions in a very different way from big federal corporations. They couldn't have two bites of the apple kind of said to me that they couldn't play a corrupt game the way they saw TVA playing. They didn't want to get around the law the way they thought TVA was. They believed in the protections of the Constitution and trusted that somewhere along the line it would break the iron of the triangle and the foundations of American values would prevail. I think a lot of people want to believe in those ideals in the face of the contrary. Sure. But after Carter failed to veto, as you can imagine, the farmers would try anything. So Zig, knowing all about how to get media attention, told the farmers to get a bunch of tractors together. Yeah, I guess it was about 10 o'clock when he told us to start making posters. And We took a bunch of tractors up there and drove them down Main Street in Knoxville. Twin towers of TVA. Yeah. We made signs of protest, save the farmland, save the river. We made big old poster board signs, colorful magic markers. Beulah made Mama a beauty sash, just like beauty queens. Well, this said Carter, it was black, and in silvery letters, she's on the front of the paper. Carter betrayed us. Do you know what a two-cylinder John Deere tractor sounds like? It's got the pop, 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 the pop. So we had tractors of all kinds, and that two-cylinder piston would pop off that can like a canyon wall. It would be like backfiring going on. And to see the, the faces of the people on the sidewalks, because they didn't know what was coming. And it was just like, oh my goodness. And, the, and to, to watch Mama and Daddy and uh, know that these tractors had been on the river and that they had worked the land, and here they were protesting for us. It made the news that night. A lot of people, I'm sure, thought them people nuts doing that. Knoxville knew we were there that day. But no, and at the same time we were there, TVA was back at work over at the, the canal. I mean, they did not waste a minute. There's just so much about this story. The farmers fighting for basically their homeland and all these complications presented by the law and federal corporations and the inner workings of Congress and the Supreme Court. But there's still this huge chunk missing for me. This series is called The Story of Tanasi, but we haven't heard at all from the Cherokee. Weren't they pretty severely affected? I mean, their sacred capital site of Tanasi is underwater. Yes. You know, there were threats of violence and everything else, but I mean, people who were close to the situation said things had gotten very heated. So Telica was sort of caught at this interface of uh, huge changes in archaeological thinking, environmental thinking, civil rights thinking, the role of government agencies, and on and on and on. So it was kind of caught in the sort of the vortex there of all these things that were happening. We will dig into another side of this incredible controversy in our next episode of The Story of Tanasi.
You can find images of Zig, Young, and Ole, the snail darter, and other things we talked about on our website at middleofeverywherepod.org or on Instagram and Facebook at middleofeverywherepod and on Twitter at rural underscore stories. If you want to learn even more little tidbits about this story, sign up for our newsletter, which you can find on our website. This episode of Middle of Everywhere was produced by me, Ariel Lavery, with editorial help from my co-host, Austin Carter. Our editor is Naomi Starobin. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Other scoring was from APM Music. Marketing and sponsorship support comes from Dixie Lynn. Thank you to our intern, Annie Davis, for all her fact-checking. Middle of Everywhere is a production of WKMS and PRX. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private organization funded by the American people.